You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Major General Ross Kaufman. Major General Kaufman is the Director of Army Futures Command's Next Generation Combat Vehicle Cross-Functional Team. General Kaufman, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. I'm so excited to be here, John. Thanks for having me. Thank you, sir. If you don't mind, I thought we'd start with some very basic background topics just because we have such a variety of listeners to our show, such as first, what does modernization in the Army really mean? Well, look, John, as you look across the world at your potential adversaries, they have capabilities and they have tendencies on their vehicle development and on their army development. And so as we're going to modernize our force, we don't want to modernize to parity. We want to modernize to overmatch. And to do that, we've got to look at the enemy capabilities and the locations where we would most likely fight. And then you see where the state of modern technology is today and where you think it'll get to in the coming years. And then you set goals to modernize specific pieces of equipment for our army, and then you establish a critical path and move along that critical path until you can get this equipment in the hands of our most important asset, which is our soldiers. So in my old knuckle-dragger speak, modernization can be everything from upgrading our capabilities, weapons, equipment, technologies, but also replacing older generation equipment, technologies, things like that. Yeah, so you can modernize by doing incremental upgrades to existing equipment, or you can modernize by introducing new equipment into the force. For example, we're working with uh, robotic combat vehicles. Think five to seven ton robots, 10 to 12 ton robots, and 20 ton robots. Those don't exist. That's an example of just a absolutely additive approach to modernization. Yes, sir. And I'm excited to talk about the robots. I think I'll get to that and hopefully we can show some really cool examples that I've seen, you know, just my own observations. You mentioned, you know, basically modernization against a threat, not in parity. You want to be overmatched. I think most listeners will be familiar with your army overmatch. Is there a specific threat? Sometimes we call it a pacing threat that we're competing against in our modernization efforts? Look, our pacing threat right now is identified by our civilian leadership is the Chinese military. That is our pacing threat. And so we're looking to there, we're looking at the terrain in which we would expect to encounter China as an adversary, but also we can't have our blinders on. We are a worldwide deployable force. So where other assets such as Russia or Iran, North Korea, if they have a better vehicle in their uh, army, then we need to take those capabilities into account as well. We need to understand what the most dangerous and most likely threat that we will face and then modernize to overmatch against it. Yes, sir. It makes sense to me. We got to keep an eye on what's out there and what's being developed, whether it's fully fielded or just being in development. I know there's also one concept that I've seen in either in previous army doctrine or even current concepts, this notion of fighting outnumbered and how that fits into modernization. Could you speak about that? Yeah, absolutely. So let's take China. China has a million, million soldier army. If we fight the Chinese, like when we fought them in Korea in the 50s, they're going to come with a huge number of soldiers, more than we will have on that battlefield. So we have to be able to fight out numbers and leverage our combined arms assets to defeat that numerically superior force. However, they may have the numbers, but our non-commissioned officer corps, our soldiers, our leadership at the officer level far exceeds 
exceeds their capabilities. They are set for a war of attrition where the U.S. force is modernizing to be a war of technological superiority that allows commanders to make decisions faster than our enemy so we can apply lethal effects at a more rapid rate. It doesn't matter where we go. We're going to fight outnumbered. If we face the Russians, we'll be outnumbered. So when you start talking about modernization, you got to think about things like how many stowed kills does a vehicle need? And what does a typical combat day look like for a infantry platoon? So how many enemy will they face? And do you have the kills on board and the redundancy on board necessary to not only defeat that day's enemy, but perhaps survive another day without resupply or another day and another? So this whole concept of fighting outnumbered is a numerical problem that has to be solved, but it has to be solved not only with numbers of bullets and numbers of rounds, etc. But the capabilities and the combined arms nature of the way the United States fights. It makes a lot of sense. It's a theme across my podcast, especially most recent podcast about avoid the attritional approach. We're going to fight better, you know, with better trained soldiers, better led, better equipped and to dominate. And this is really important to me as kind of an urban operations scholar to dominate in any environment, whether you're talking about the Arctic or for me, dense urban terrain. No, I agree with you 100%. Dominating those areas of the battlefield, you know, again, back to the Pacific. If you look at many military students, they say, well, look, it's going to be a Pacific theater. That means there's going to be mainly air and sea power. But half the population of the world exists in the Indo-PECOM region. If you're going to fight, you're not going to be able to bomb your way out of that. You've got to get on the ground. And people live in the city. You got to be able to dominate them in the city. And in order to do that, you need your ground force. You need the Marines. You need the Army. But to be clear, you're not going to win without the joint force. And that is how the United States of America will dominate any future battlefield because our joint force and our joint partners, absolutely incredible at dominating at the place and location of our choosing. Yes, sir. And if we, we wanted to narrow down to the PACOM area of responsibility, the most number of megacities, megalopuses, I mean, how one thinks that we could avoid the dense urban terrain kind of gets me excited and sometimes frustrated, but that's for another podcast. So, sir, another real basic question is, what is a cross-functional team since it's in the title? Cross-functional team developed under Army Futures Command. And let's just take it a little bit higher and then we'll dive into the cross-functional team. So Army Futures Command, four-star headquarters, stood up in Austin, Texas, and it's focused on the future Army and modernizing to that Army. And they, they said, okay, well, we want to stand up eight cross-functional teams. I'll go to each one of those here in a moment. And we want to put them in the epicenter of the technology by type. So for instance, I'm the next generation cross-functional team for combat vehicles. Well, where is the epicenter of vehicles in our nation? Detroit, Motown, the Motor City, right here. So I am sitting in the epicenter of vehicular innovation in the United States. And that goes everything from sensors to uh, automobile technologies, et cetera, et cetera. The future vertical lift, they're in Huntsville, Alabama. Network, that is in Aberdeen Proving Grounds. You've got the Assured Position Navigation and Timing CFT. They're in Huntsville. You've got Air and Missile Defense, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, along with the Long Range Precision Fires. Synthetic Training Environment, where is the Synthetic World's Epicenter? Orlando. And then again, I'm here in Motown. So you've taken these teams and you spread them out. So they're next to the experts, the science and technology, the, the acquisition folks, the doctrine folks, and manned them with a one or a two-star general, and then experts across acquisition logistician, engineers, soldiers, 
you've got an administrative staff, you have a financial staff, and these small, nimble, 30-person cross-functional teams then reach out and embed into the PEOs, the program executive office, into the science and technology community, into academia, into industry, and they pull in all of the goodness that is not only local, but nationwide and international in this space. And what you've done is you become really, really nimble. And the last thing I'd say is everyone really focuses on Army Futures Command or cross-functional teams, but the secret sauce for our United States Army to modernize, the secret sauce is very clear. It's been the focus of our Army senior leaders. So the Secretary of the Army, the Undersecretary of the Army, Chief of Staff of the Army, and the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, as well as the the Sergeant Major of the Army. They are hands-on, involved. If I need a decision, John, I just need to call up and make an appointment. The access and focus of our Army senior leaders, that's what's making this happen. That's the magic. That's the secret sauce. That's what allows the cross-functional teams to be successful. And I actually feel that and we at the Modern War Institute have had two different Secretary of the Armies on about these modernization priorities. And, and I can feel that institutional kind of focus and momentum and priority of this. So it actually makes me think of some older modernization efforts. Are there any similarities in the cross-functional teams of today and some of our historic modernization efforts? And you know, of course, the, the big five of the 1970s and 1980s comes to mind. Yeah. So a lot of similarities, a lot of lessons learned and a lot of goodness brought forward from those efforts. So for me, we'll just look at, and you talk the big five, the M1 Abrams and the Bradley fighting vehicle. So the Bradley fighting vehicle is my number one priority is replacing that. And when you look at what we did with the Bradley and everyone's seen the movie uh, Pentagon Wars, everyone's seen the movie Pentagon Wars and the trials and tribulations associated with that acquisition. And mainly it became a challenge of changing the requirements constantly evolving the requirements and losing focus. So what allowed that to be successful was the innovation of technology when finally the the requirements were locked. So we took that piece, that good piece out of that very challenging time in our history and said, okay, on our cross-functional team, we want to make sure that we understand the exact time that we need to set a requirement and then not continuously change our minds so that this becomes a very arduous process. For the M1 tank, some similarities. The first M1 tank was fielded with a 105 cannon. They wanted to go to 120 millimeter, but the technology wasn't ready. So what we've applied in the NGCV CFT is, look, we need to be honest with ourselves of where the technology is today and where it's going and snap the chalk line on what is achievable on schedule, cost, and performance today, and then articulate within the requirements the desire to upgrade over time. So those are just two examples. But the thing I'd tell you, John, the last big piece about the Big Five is the Army was unified and they were focused on modernizing to overmatch. And that is exactly what we're doing today with Army Futures Command and Army Simulator. I'm glad you brought up the Pentagon Wars because I wasn't going to bring it up just as you know, an issue. But <laughs> I mean, it's a great, it's a very humorous scene within that movie. I'm sure you're very familiar with. And I wasn't going to ask like if you're that, you're that representative of the vehicle. I tell you, what I think is going to happen, John, is in about five years, whoever plays me will be determined by our success. So it could be either Danny DeVito or Bruce Willis. If we totally screw this up. It's Danny DeVito. And if we knock it out of the park, I think Bruce Willis is moving to Motown. 
Yes, sir. And I fully recognize the Army has lots of lessons learned with modernization efforts. And I, usually the big five is, is our, one of our great successes. And sometimes people will mention things such as Army after next or different initiatives where we got ahead of ourselves in trying to modernize before technology is available. So your comment about what technology is on the horizon or ready today versus future sci-fi kind of ideas. Well, it's, it can be intoxicating because you really want that technology. It is, and it's so close. And the people that are telling you the status of their development are so bought in and, and they, they're so committed to this technology that it can become intoxicating. And you, you want it on your vehicle because you want your soldiers to have the best things in the world. But you just have to be honest and look yourself in the mirror and look your uh, peers in the eye and say, look, it's not ready. If you can have that honest conversation, then we can get that in the hands of our soldiers when it is ready. But some Army programs in the past have really just kept stringing that along and stringing along. And pretty soon you're wasting taxpayer dollars. Yes, sir. So, sir, I know you're the next generation combat vehicle cross-functional team. Is there a left and right limit of what's in your portfolio as a combat vehicle? If it has wheels and it rolls or does it have to carry somebody? Is it, What's the left and right of that combat vehicle part? Okay, so I often say combat vehicles, right? Because I've got, in our portfolio, we've got the Bradley replacement. That's number one. Number two is the robotic combat vehicles. So think of light, medium, and heavy robots. And then you've got the AMP-V, which is the 113 replacement, and mobile protective firepower, which puts a, a light tank into our infantry divisions, our light infantry divisions. And then finally, we've got, in our portfolio, looking at what is next after Abram. So my left and right limit uh, really spans those topics. But when you talk specifically to the Bradley replacement, the OMFV, Officer Man Fighting Vehicle, there is no limit. Everything that has, uh, has to do with that vehicle is in my wheelhouse. However, it's also in General Dean's wheelhouse, who's the PEO. And it's in uh, several of the S&T community centers wheelhouse. So this is a huge team of teams that is focused on, on obviously man fighting vehicles, just like they're focused on the artillery systems, the air defense systems, the communication. There is, you know, the old saying where work becomes easy when no one cares who gets the credit for it. And that's the approach. It's, we're not about fixing blames or we're about fixing problems. And uh, I think everyone is eye to eye on that effort. So I, I know you, you already have within this portfolio vehicles that are identified as being replaced, one of them being the Bradley fighting vehicle. And for all visibility and, and my own personal baggage, I was a combined arms team company commander with Bradley's and my tank attachments, beautiful vehicles, fought in dense urban terrain in the Battle of Slaughter City and know the advantages that it gives us in the overmatch. What's wrong with the Bradley today? Well, the Bradley has been a workhorse for us for several years, but it's overmatched. 104 countries in this world have a 30 millimeter. So right there, the 25 millimeter is outgunned by 104 nations. The survivability, uh, as you know from your time in Sauter City on the Bradley, the underbelly is not what we want. We want to upgrade that, continue to protect our soldiers. The number of soldiers that you can get in the back of a Bradley, it's, it's an odd, weird number that it doesn't break down by squad. It doesn't break down by team. It's just kind of awkward. And we've really reached the limit of its upgradability. So as we do look at technology upgrades, we are at the limit of the Bradley's swap space, size, weight, power, and upgradability for electronics as well. So there's nothing wrong with the Bradley. It's just time to get a new infantry fighting vehicle for our soldiers. 
that gives them overmatch over our adversaries. And I know that's a huge topic, and I was hoping it would be like a softball. As a more general sense, I mean, how do you see these next-generation combat vehicles being employed on future battlefields? Okay, so first, it's one of the major differences. It's optionally manned. That means it can be a robot or it can be manned. So commanders will have the decision of where to man and unman these vehicles. But you can imagine, John, in your wheelhouse of the dense urban terrain, where I want to maximize the number of infantry women and men on the objective that I have an operator controlling the optionally manned fighting vehicle in a support by fire role, while the majority or maximize the number of infantry women and men on the ground to clear dense urban terrain. In open rolling terrain, you can see that the optionally manned fighting vehicle working in unison with a robotic combat vehicle so that we're making contact with a, a robot with the enemy. And once that contact is made, that information is passed to the OMFV, promulgated across the force, and commanders are making decisions so that now I could put waypoints in and have the OMFV move along a flank on a mounted avenue of approach while I dismount my infantry and move on a dismounted avenue of approach. And then once the OMFV gets set into a attack by fire position, we open fire simultaneously with the mounted and dismounted force, allowing us to clear the objective. The other piece is the OMFV will be able to clear the far side of wet gap crossing to enable bridging to get in for our heavy M1 Abrams tanks. So the Mission profile for the OMFV, whether it's in the Pacific or whether it's in Europe or elsewhere, doesn't change to deliver fresh legs to the objective after fighting through the enemy security zone. So that our infantry women and our infantry men will arrive in the objective safe, unharmed, and with better situational awareness than they've ever had. Yes, sir. And I appreciate that context. You know, I know that these platforms and these capabilities have to be, because we are a globally focused force, has to be able to overmatch and dominate in any environment. I focus on urban operations because I think it's the most complex, hardest terrain you'd ever deploy forces or equipment. And I know the dense urban terrain has a funny way of interacting or making it more complicated. It doesn't mean that it's not an environment we'll go into, but making it harder for some systems to work, whether that's electromagnetic spectrum, the physical terrain of signal interruption, things like that. I, mean, I, I do see, of course, all the advantage an optimally manned fighting vehicle would have in a high intensity dirt to urban fight, you know, large scale combat operations. And I think it was General Rainey during our episode that said, you have some of these modernization efforts, how much it would help us in a, if you had to enter the dense urban terrain to seize and you know, take the enemy's land when needed, you basically not make contact with your face and capabilities he didn't have back in 2004, you know, where a vehicle is in front taking that surprise contact that allows you to maneuver onto the enemy. All those advantages, like you said, clearing the obstacles. And actually one of my multi-year-back articles on a wish list of urban capabilities was the frustration I had from basically dismounting from my Bradley fighting vehicle and just moving around the corner and how that kind of negated that support by fire because now he can't see what I can see, basically a stationary target. As we advance our capabilities, how that can actually be changed and where your support by fire can be moved without you being in it, it would be a huge advantage to me. Yeah, and I think, you know, look, as mechanized warriors, we know one thing. Well, we know many things, but here's one of them. Our soldiers that come out of the back of our infantry fighting vehicles are absolutely amazing. Our infantry fighting vehicles are absolutely amazing. But when fought in unison, 
alongside also uh, our Abrams tanks. They're unstoppable. So you've got infantry fighting vehicles fighting alongside their infantrymen with tanks all on a flank. That is a punch that uh, no army can beat, in my opinion. Yes, sir. You'll be surprised, actually. And, and some of it's just you know, people not as informed about the power of the joint force, despite historical case studies, about my advocation for the utility of combined arms maneuver, and especially having armor with me in dense urban fights. Because everybody will throw out the anti-tank guided missiles, the threat of RPGs, and just you're not understanding that, hey, tanks support infantry, infantry support tanks. And it's the combination that is this great overmatch in lethality that we bring. What do you say when people say, basically, tanks are too vulnerable for urban terrain, or even armored personnel carriers, too vulnerable in urban terrain to the the wealth of anti-armor capabilities that are available on the battlefield? Some people even throwing out the recent operations of in the NKO, Nagarden Karabakh battle, where you saw tanks being destroyed by you know certain drone capabilities. It has to be a, a large part of your conversation on, hey, this stuff is just too vulnerable on the battlefield today. Yeah, it takes me back when I was first coming in the army and anti-tank weapons were really all in the news. This is in the late 80s. And uh, my dad, who, you know, I'm a third generation tanker. And so I told my dad, I said, hey, listen, uh, I'm a little worried about these these AT weapons, and uh, maybe I don't want to go on tanks. And he said, well, a 7.62 will go through a field jacket, so you just got to kind of measure the threat of where you are. What's the alternative, right? Is So the alternative is we're just going to flood the zone with more soldiers, more sons and daughters of our country, and, and allow them to take the brunt of the uh, heavy machine gun fire? No. The armored vehicle is not obsolete, and the increase in drone warfare does not negate the capabilities of our main battle tank. We fight combined arms, and what you saw in that battle, they weren't fighting combined arms back, right? So you almost had an army that used multiple capabilities within its quiver against a sedentary force that was ill-prepared for. If they're fighting the United States of America, we have our entire joint force to bring to bear to fight that, you know, whether that's our air defense systems, our counter drone effort, our electronic warfare, our direct fire. And so we fight. The efficacy of our combined arms force cannot be understated. It is absolutely amazing what we have within our arsenal within the joint force. And as far as armor forces in an urban environment, you need look no further than people like yourself and General Jim Rainey and any other infantry advocate on the world that's fought in urban terrain and ask them, would you like a tank with you? And the answer is unequivocally and every time, no, I'd like 10. Okay, I want more because it provides options and it makes the enemy fight in multiple directions and gives the enemy multiple dilemmas so that we can take advantage of. And anyone that says, I would not like to have an armored vehicle with me in an urban terrain has never fought in urban terrain. Bottom line, end of story, full stop. Yes, sir. You know, I'm a believer and, and I 100% agree. With, and as General Rennie said, we're the best army in the world. We're going to bring not just a couple capabilities. We're going to bring all our capabilities to bear on you simultaneously. And then for me, you have a defender in urban terrain. Hey, it's not a no-go zone for me. I'm going to penetrate that. I'm going to penetrate it with combined arms joint force, armor, artillery, engineers, I'm going to bring it all. To me, looking at historical case studies across, especially the modern era, when you don't do that, 
when you don't have your armored capability or even mobile protected firepower, you look to other capabilities. So you increase your artillery use, you increase your bombing use. It's almost common sense to us, but for, I think, many populations, it's not. Well, and I tell you, John, look, if you joined the Army in the last 10, 15 years, you deployed, your concept of urban maneuver and urban operation was in the third building from the right in room number 12C, there's a bad person, and you're going to go court on that building, go up to that floor, and you're going to extract the bad person. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about large-scale combat operations where the enemy is embedded into an urban environment. The rules of engagement are written so that you have the right to self-defense, and should you receive fire from a building, then you can, if the situation merits it, level that building. It is about going in winning, taking victory, not going to take a bomb maker in building number 14. This is absolute full-scale combat operations in an urban environment. It's tough. If you don't think you want armored forces and large-scale combat operations in every environment, you're starting yourself off at a C-. minus. Yes, sir. I'm a big, huge, I mean, one of the passions of mine is urban operations. It's the full-scale, full-spectrum of operations. It's not just counterterrorism or counterinsurgency, which yeah, those are skills that we've huge lessons and we're, we're experts at it. But there, there are situations along the spectrum where that is one aspect of your quiver. Uh, and and I, I can do that with extreme lethality, but there's also higher intensity, different levels, which require more training, more capabilities in combined arms maneuver. Concur, 100%. So, sir, on, on that one aspect about, I know that it's the iron triangle of the old school days about protection, speed, firepower. What There's different acronyms, I know. What are the type of protections that you as the next generation combat vehicle looking at? I know there's a full spectrum of protection, everything from active protection to you know, just the thickness of the armor or the V-shaped hole, all these things. Yeah. So, unfortunately, material science moves extremely slow. And so the physics of metallurgy, they've not moved very far. But now what has moved very far is the active protection systems that actually detect and defeat enemy capabilities as they're shot at vehicles or people or whatever. So that's one we're absolutely focused on. We're focused on signature management. So everything from electronic signatures to uh, thermal signatures, visual signatures, uh, there's huge advancements in, in those. That can be as simple as how tall the vehicle is, how wide the vehicle is, where the heat source is, where's the, where's the exhaust. There's a lot of exciting things in that area. The electronic warfare detection, that is a real capability that our enemy possesses. So we have to be very cognizant of what our signature is on the battlefield with regard to that. And then finally, what I'd say is there's been some really exciting developments when it comes to the type of camouflage that we're using, the type of paint and and patterns just really 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 helpful for survivability so i think what you're going to see and we don't know yet because we haven't seen what the proposals will be from industry but i think what you're going to see is something that looks very different and is a lot harder to detect on the battle makes sense since protection isn't just like you said about the thickness of the the actual vehicle but it's many things you just got to go into that discussion with understanding the capabilities of your enemy. Our women and men deserve the best survivability is paramount in our business. 
No, so, so you mentioned on top of vehicle replacement, the robot combat vehicle. That's actually pretty exciting. I didn't know if you could talk more about the types of robotics you're looking at. I think I heard you in one one interview actually mentioned expendable, tritable, and then the human in the robot kind of concept. Really excited about the expendable because some aspects, whether it's a flying robot or whatever, if it costs so much that it becomes a higher priority than the actual use of it, then I think there's some challenges. Could you talk any more about what type of robotics that you're looking at? Yeah, absolutely I can. So when you talk robots, the actual building of a robot is quite simple. As long as that that is a by wire, like your pickup truck is by wire if you bought it today, then that can be turned into a robot. I mean, we turned 113s into robots. If you can turn 113 into a robot, you can turn anything into a robot. So that's one aspect of it. But then you have the multiple mission payloads. So we're building all of our robots to be payload agnostic. So those can be sensors. They can be NBC sensors. They can be have machine guns on it. They could have smoke. They could have NBC decontamination aspects to it. Anything that we want to put on a robot, engineers, breaching, etc., you can put on top of these robots. So really now that's a payload, and that really just comes down to capabilities and weight management. That's two aspects. you got the robot, you got the payload. Well, then you have the radio. Right. So we call it the tether. So the radio that goes between the robot and the controller. And again, this is a science problem. Okay. It's more of a physics problem, actually. How far can you get the robot away from the controller? And what's accepted? And so there's some civilian companies out there that are really, really bending physics when it comes to radio frequencies and radio models. And we're maximizing those to get the megabits per second required to operate. And then you have the human interface. You got the human controller. What does that look like? Well, we want to have a common control software package, whether you're controlling a UAV, a UGV, or any other robot. We want to make sure that we have some common software there so we're not reinventing the wheel each time. And then when you start talking attritable and expendable. So I'll give you an example. The RCV medium that we uh have on contract with an industry partner, it has a marsupial robot inside of it. So you can imagine that the RCV medium, think 10 to 12 tons, pulls up to the military crest of a hill, can't quite see on the far side of it. A door opens, a marsupial robot comes out of it, goes across the other side to make sure there's no enemy waiting. And then when it's determined there is no enemy or if there is and it's destroyed, then the RCV medium then moves forward picks up its marsupial robot or brings the marsupial robot back. In that instance, the marsupial would be expendable. And so you could load a you could load a robot with multiple marsupial robots and just use those in that fashion. But you know, it goes back to our old doctrine, which is make contact with the smallest element first. The idea is that these robots are not going to reduce the number of people in our army. That these robots are going to reduce the risk to the people that we do have. It's exciting. I mean really, really exciting. The autonomy package is the final thing that is on these these robots. Right now, what our goal is to have 12 robots controlled by one human and consider that every human interaction is a failure. If you take that mindset that every human interaction is a failure, then you're, you're heading in the right direction. But currently, the off-road autonomy package is not there. Okay, it, Now it takes multiple humans to operate one robot. One controls the payload, one controls the robot. But we will continue to push to have autonomous behavior that allows the robot to drive itself, 
sense for itself, then the human is the approval factor for any engagement. Yeah, sure. It makes sense. Actually, I have a lot of questions. I think the overall question is when these newer technologies get experimented with, I think I saw at AUSA, the fully robotic breaching experiment. So I, as the urban guy, of course, you know, unlike the old guy in the corner, like how's that working in dense urban terrain? I think the radio frequency one is as any soldier who's ever lost a signal to a Raven is extremely frustrating, but I've also seen some experiments where the dense urban terrain, the buildings, the concrete affects radio frequency. I think the overall question is how does the requirements that you build in when they get experimented with is the that high difficulty of urban train, one of the venues in which the technology has to work with a certain amount of probability. Yeah, what I tell you, John, is these are all wicked hard problems. And so an urban terrain has some advantages. You know, the radio frequencies in some some urban environments will bounce further. They give you more rain. In others, it reduces the rate. But as long as you understand what that is, let's say it was only 200 meters. Well, I'd still rather have a robot out there in that dangerous situation trying to find the enemy 200 meters in front of me instead of two kilometers. If that's all I could get, well, that's all I can get. So we just got to be realistic. Part of this is physics and you're just not going to change it. But this is how we do it, which might be informative. We start with a pool table. So we go on flat terrain and we put the robots out as far as we can, flat terrain, perfect line of sight. And then we add lightly wooded and we go densely wooded. And we go to urban and we then identify the best athlete in each of these radio sets. And that informs our requirement because at the end of the day, we don't care who makes it. What we're trying to do is determine the achievable requirement based on what physics is capable of today. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. It makes 100% sense. And I, I really like that progressive. And that's what I imagined. I just haven't seen it, you know, and that's my own issues. And that's why I try to get out as much as I can to training events, experiments, and that whole analogy of start with less complex and add the complexity, which will change the requirements. Sir, I'm, I'm cognizant of your time. I know I could talk about this for hours. Fascinating, very informative. And I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk to us about this next generation of combat vehicles in our modernization effort. Hey, John, you know, this is exciting for me. It's my passion. It's what I do. And they even pay me to do it. So it is really, really great. And just for your listeners, you know, the power of Twitter, John and I are going back and forth on Twitter on a subject. And the next thing you know, uh, he asked me to be on this podcast. I said, if I get to choose what we talk about and here we are making it happen. So I really appreciate you reaching out. It was a great idea, great use of my time. And if ever you need me again, just let me know. Yes, sir. I really appreciate that. And I, I 100% agree. I can't list the amount of immense opportunities and conversations and debates that I've had on social media and the advantage of all of our senior leaders, so many that are out there on, on that space and interacting. I just published an article with the Sergeant Major of the Army and, and it happened because of the debate that was happening on the social media aspect. And to me, that's what professions do. We generate knowledge, we debate, we have open conversations. And, and like you said, that, that's it's amazing. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NGY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.